It's an honor to be with you guys uh, tonight. My heart is uh, very soft in the picture of God's grace and uh, excited to journey with you guys. I'm curious what would happen to you if when you left the worship gathering, there was a voicemail on your phone from a book company and they had contacted you because they're desirous of you writing an autobiography about yourself. I wonder what your first reaction would be, right? Some of you uh, would actually think that's probably a pretty good idea. You enjoy writing. You think your life is pretty interesting, so why not sell it? You know, that would be good. Others of you um, would feel like maybe it's like a term paper, and so the, the thought of doing anything on computer outside of clicking on Firefox is a, is a, a version for you. Um, and others of you would be really interested in how much cash Ola you would make from the project, you know, but th those answers really aren't what I'm interested in. What I'm interested in is this, is what would the title of your book be? What picture would go on the cover, right? When you opened it, what would the chapter titles have in them, your autobiography? How would that first paragraph open? Would there be any pictures in it? If there aren't, I'm not reading it, I'm just saying. But, you know, feel free to add pictures or take them out if you'd like. What would be the end, like the final conclusion of your autobiography? One of the things that always strikes me when I stand before a group of people is the weight of the thought of how many stories are in this room. In other words, you take your autobiography, the relationships represented, the hurt, the joys, the jobs, the schooling, the study, all of it, all of the emotions, all of your life, all of the baggage, everything you are, and you multiply it by every person in this room. And often when I stand up here before I teach, I just span the crowd and my heart gets softened by how many stories are represented in this room. What if someone came to you in that book deal and said, you can choose any chapter that you want, write on anything, but there has to be one chapter that's entitled church. I'm curious what you'd write about. For some of you, maybe the content would be filled with pain. How many people in the church have wronged you? How people haven't lived up to the expectations that you had, or more importantly, how people just weren't who they said that they were. For others of you, that chapter would be extremely short, mostly just because of your experience in the church is very limited. For others of you, it'd be filled with joy and memories and people. For me, uh, my chapter on the church would probably open with a picture, this picture, um, First Reformed Church of Wichert, St. Anne, Illinois, about 60 miles south of Chicago. Uh, this is where I grew up. All of my family went to this church building week in and week out. I'm not sure the exact date of this picture. It was the only picture I could find on the internet uh, of the church. Uh, by the close, it, I'm guessing mid-50s. Um, Funny enough, where that table is there on the front, when I was seven years old in that church building, 
was the very first time that I stood up in front of people, stood up in front of my church and recited Psalm 121 right there where that, it's a picture of Dawson, my little son, blonde-haired son, a little bit taller, and you can picture me there. If I were writing in uh, my chapter on the church, it would uh, definitely have some pain and regret. It'd have um, a little bit on this uh, puppet, a leader, in my first uh, youth ministry job that chewed me out and uh, put a big distaste in my mouth over puppets. Um, didn't like them before. Definitely don't like them now. Um, would have been some nice comedic relief in that chapter. And honestly, like it, it definitely would have had August 31st of 2005. And uh, a moment for us, um, a few of you were there. I was 25 years old. And I stood up on that night at a St. Charles High School, one of our uh, 10, it feels like, buildings that we've met in, and communicated the vision that God had called us as a church to pursue. It was an amazing night, a night that has started all of this in some senses. And so now six years later to the day, August 31st, 2011, I thought it would be fitting of us to communicate again the vision, not from my own words, but from the scripture, the things that God has called us to do, the story that God is writing using our particular church community and the facets thereof. And so if you're here and you know what God has called Matthias' lot to be and do, then praise God and you're about ready to get a reaffirmation of that. But if you're here and you're curious of how this vision meshes with the scripture, then my friends, you're in for a special treat tonight. So we're going to take a break from Hebrews and I want you guys to open your Bibles to 2 Peter chapter 1. Peter, uh, of course, is thought by many to have written this, mostly because his name is in the title. Be a good assumption. His name also finds it itself in verse 1. The problem is it's highly debated on who wrote uh, 2 Peter. 1 Peter, of course, we spent a year in as a church studying. Uh, but I believe just by the literary uh, consistencies... Uh, that if Peter didn't write Second Peter, I believe he certainly affirmed it. He probably signed off on it if he didn't pen it himself. Either way, we're going to look at verses 3 through 10, study the text as it pertains to God's call on this church. Let's start here in verse 3, and we'll read uh, to verse 10. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness, through the knowledge of Him who called us to His own glory and excellence, by which He has granted to us His precious and very great promises, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of the sinful nature. In verse 5, check this out. For this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue and virtue with knowledge and knowledge with self-control and self-control with steadfastness and steadfastness with godliness and godliness with brotherly affection and brotherly affection with love. For these qualities are yours and are increasing 
They keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he is blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. In verse 10, Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to make your calling and election sure. For if you practice these qualities, you will never... What's the word there? Fall. Let's start here in verse 3. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of Him who called us to His own glory and excellence. Notice the two mentions of the word us. Powerful text beginning to speak to the Christians that he's writing to, but I need you guys to understand this. I think sometimes when it comes to the Scripture, we see it as some romanticized picture of what God was doing. And when we romanticize it, it disconnects from our existence. Are you with me? When it feels like so far out there, almost like it's a movie scene, it feels pulled away from our experience. Let me use this as an example. When the disciples were called by Christ, the twelve, on a beach, most of them were fishermen, and what does Jesus say? He says, come and follow me. He doesn't say, check here if you like me. Grab my hand in unity if you accept. He says, come and follow me. Well, that calling of the disciples, and you can picture the sights and the sounds and these brute fishermen that the Christ happens by, calls them, was probably in relationship to some extent before. It feels like that, that's just so far away from my experience and existence. I, I beg that it's exactly our story if you're a follower of Jesus. At some point in your life, if you are a follower of His, He has, in His pursuit of you, said and echoed the words, come and follow me. The very same thing that the disciples heard, a few of them on a beach, tax collector later on, those same words are echoed to you at the onset of your faith, and I believe, breathed in the text over and over, come and follow me. You have a very specific calling on your life. I know there's been many times where you feel like I have no purpose. What is God going to do with me? I know I have all these gifts, but they seem so disconnected from how God could ever use them. Let me encourage you with this. If you start reading your scripture, what you're going to find is you have a very specific calling. What this text does in 2 Peter is it maps out for us as believers a piece of that calling. But know this, as romanticized and movied as the scripture feels, you could have just as well been on that beach on that day. Because Christ in his calling has called you to himself, to a very specific thing. And I know that many of you, unfortunately tonight, would not be able to communicate that. So what is it that you're called to? What is it that you feel like is really causing your heart to be stirred to action? And I fear that many of you would say, I'm just not quite sure. This text maps it out for us. His divine power is granted to us, what does it say? All things. Remember last week in our study of Hebrews 9, the power of not just a thing that Christ does, but He does all things. He is the source of our calling. Our calling isn't based on a church gathering 
or on a building or on our parents or some friends who are strong believers. Our calling is based on the source and the source is Christ. Are you with me? It's not based on a pastor or some creative vision or ambiance. All of this, Matthias's lot and every other calling that he has on all of us personally, Jesus is the source of it. So I don't ever want you to get confused that what we're doing here is going off on some tangents about Matthias's lot. No, Jesus is the source of our calling, and so he's where we look to be affirmed in that calling. So he sets this up in verse 3, and then he says this in verse 4. And I want to help us understand this with a couple questions. By which he has granted to us, look at this, his precious and very great promises, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of the sinful desire. It seems wordy. Let me ask you a couple questions, and I think it will explain. Have you ever had the sense? You've come to this moment, fist clenched, where you said to yourself, I cannot trust anyone. You've gone through a period of time, a couple weeks, maybe a couple days, where you said to a few people, hey, listen, I'm sharing this with you in confidence. Please don't tell anyone this. And then soon after they say, I promise, pretty soon it's blabbed to a few of your known friends. And then pretty soon that continues to move forward. And, and then this person betrays your trust. Have you ever had the moment in your life, fist clenched, where you were like, I can't trust anyone? And what has that done for you in that moment? It's made you feel alone and isolated, separated, segregated, completely on an island, hasn't it? When you feel like you can trust no one, there's this sense that you're completely disconnected from everyone else that you're fighting this battle, what? Alone. Second question. Have you ever had this feeling that you can't escape your sin? Have you ever been so trapped, burdened, bogged down by your sinful nature where you feel like you cannot escape? It's too heavy. It's too weighty. There's too many burdens coming down. Can I share with you the beautiful truth of what this writer is saying? In Christ, it's not just that we escape because of the power of Jesus, our sinful nature. It's that when we escape, we have something to cling on to. It's not just escaping the sinful nature. It's when we get out, we have something to cling to. Are you with me? And that's sustaining. Let me show you what I mean. College kids, maybe you used to, right? Many of you went to school. Your parents put a curfew on you at like 8 p.m. Okay, you didn't like that so much. They didn't let you watch TV or video games, uh, play video games rather. You didn't get to eat what you wanted. You felt really trapped in your own home. And some of those students then, when they get to school... Or they get on the workforce and they have freedom, what happens? They escape, but then they have nothing to cling on to. And so what happens? They just live frivolously. They just go for it. There's nothing guiding them. There's nothing sustaining them. So it's like, I'm just going to live and let live. I was talking to a parole officer here in our community earlier today. And I said, what's the percentage of people who get convicted, get put in the can, and then come out and return 
to their sin. Listen to this. For people that are placed in jail, this is based upon this person and their boss, 90%, 90% of DWIs who get convicted and placed in jail or prison and marijuana convictions, 90% of those people come out of jail or prison and then they revert right back to where they had been. Why? Because they escape and then they have nothing to hold on to. There's, no tr- there's nothing sustaining them. So what do they do? Figuratively, they go right back to the prison. In Christ, we escape the sinful nature because of what He has done, and then we come out and we get to cling to these precious promises. And so the moments in your life, my friends, that you said, I can't trust anyone, that should never be said of a believer. Because when all seems lost, when you feel like there's no one else that I can trust, I'm all alone. The power of the gospel is you are never alone. You are never isolated. You are never on an island. Certainly there will be times where you have to stand for your faith by yourself in the midst of sin and unbelievers. But my friends, never are you alone. And that's one of the greatest promises you could ever believe in. And so he's setting these passages up, getting his readers to understand the depth and the power of what Christ has done to now list eight different traits, pursuits, challenges of the believer. So let's look at these eight and then we're going to break them down. This should be fun. Verse 5, for this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue. Virtue with knowledge, and knowledge with self-control, and self-control with steadfastness, and steadfastness with godliness, and godliness with brotherly affection, and brotherly affection with love. Well, here's what we're going to do. Thankfully, we have a Greek scholar in our midst. Jared has helped me break these words down in the Greek. He's a brilliant, uh, brilliant stud, seminary guy. We're going to break all these words down, but before we do that, as we evaluate as you evaluate where you are at in your calling of the pursuit of these things, I want to show you how the writer is gauging this. Put up verse 9 real quick, for, or verse 8. For if these qualities are yours and what? And are what? Increasing. So as we go through these eight things and you're beginning to evaluate your maturity in Christ, your growth in Jesus, the plan that has been laid out for you to escape the sinful nature and now follow Christ, the question that you're going to be asking yourself as we work through all of these is, are these things increasing in my life? So put up faith first. I'm not going to say all the Greek words because I'm messing up, mess them up and I'll be asking Jared all night long. Rather, I'm just going to define them based upon our best rendition. So faith was the first. Here's what faith means. A firm persuasion, conviction that is not based on sight, conviction that's based on on hearing and trust, a firm persuasion. It's interesting, isn't it, that faith begins the list. Luke 17, when uh, Jesus and the disciples are having a conversation about repentance and forgiveness, Do you remember what the disciples prayed after that moment? They said, Lord, increase our faith. Why did they pray that? 
Because they fully believe that he's the originator of their faith. He wouldn't and they wouldn't ask Jesus to increase their faith if they believed that they could muster it up on their own. Are you with me? They don't have to muster it up because he is the one that's sustaining and placing their trust in him from him. He's the source just like we saw in verse 3. Are you with me? So the question then should be asked of you. Do you feel like, sense, believe that your faith right now is increasing? You're trusting more. You used to trust a lot in yourself or in your friends or in your family or in the things that were easily attainable. But now, do you find yourself trusting in God more and more that all these things that used to bother you are now bouncing off of your chest because you just have this profound depth of belief that it's all under control and more specifically His? Would you say that? The next of these eight traits is virtue. Now, this is kind of a fun word. I feel like this is like a Lord of the Rings kind of word or something, you know? Uh, It's not. Very biblical. Here's what it means. It means superiority in every respect or excellence. It's another way of saying um, moral wisdom. Do you feel like your life is representing in a more increasingly fashion excellence? Would people look to you and say the things that you're pondering and questioning and talking about is representative of excellence? Not of this world, of course, but of the things of God. Is that increasing? Would people say of you that you're more and more a virtuous man and woman? Or are you just chasing after the things that are putting you back in prison? The next of these traits, he says, is knowledge. Best Greek rendition we can get of this is the understanding of a thing. Recognition. So there's one thing to have wisdom and knowledge is the thing that we're continually recognizing the things of God. Uh, This, for me, is really easy to to consider. It's so uh, hilarious, and I talk about it often, how many people say, I'm just not learning anything. Okay, have you been reading your scripture? Yeah, about that. Um, I read a great Max Lucado book. That was nice. Yeah, about that. Um, The text needs no additional resources. Thankfully, we have them in God's grace. But the text is the text. God's word is God's word. And from it comes all knowledge and all truth and all wisdom. And so if we want to grow in an ever increasingly fashion knowledge, then this would be a phenomenal place to start. We prayed a a couple years ago that God would bring more and more people of season, I like to call them here, to our community. And praise God he has. Two years ago our average age was about 18, right? Now, thankfully, you look around and our average age continues to go up. And we're so incredibly grateful for it. Why? Because men and women of season bring with them more and more knowledge and wisdom. Most. So we're thankful here in this body to have so many of you. Can we just give it up for those folks here too? Because I'm excited that they're here, man. Praise God. And they sit in the front row. You know, what could be better? They're like ready to go. Next thing. We'll give each other a pound later, Mike. You know what I'm saying? This is where, this is where I fear that it all falls apart. Yeah, yeah Mark, man, I, I, feel like I'm, I feel like I'm a more virtuous man or woman. Yeah, Mark, my not, man, I could spout at least the Jesus wept Bible verse to you. I mean, I'm growing in my knowledge. And then you get to self-control midway through the list. 
Would you say that you have more self-control now than you did a week ago, two weeks ago, a month ago? That you're growing, increasing. Here's what it means. It's a simply opposite to self-indulgence. Indulgence is give me more, give me what I want, give me in that and the time that I want it. One who masters his desires and passions. When an inkling of his former passion arises, he through the power of Christ has mastered that thing so much that in his self-control, there is no thought to self-indulging. The scripture uh, calls it in this way, it says that there may never be a hint, right? You feel like you're more self-control, have more self-control rather. Next thing, steadfastness. I love this. Uh, here's the definition, patience, enduring, or probably the best maybe perseverance. Maybe some of your translations actually says perseverance. As he's writing this to these believers, encouraging their pursuit, his contention is, as you're maturing, as you're growing, you're steadfast. You persevere. This whole faith thing doesn't start and then in your perception just fall apart. It builds upon itself day by day. Steadfastness, would you say, you're becoming more secure. Godliness relates to real, true, vital relation with God. Now the Greek word there that it says it's the opposite of, here's the cool thing. It's the opposite in this a Greek form to religion. So like relation and godliness is opposite from this concept of public display of my faith in terms of following some dutiful example of God. Religion this godliness has nothing to do with religion and everything to do with relationship to God through Christ. Next slide. Brotherly affection. Uh, the Greek word here, interestingly enough, is anyone know? Uh, that's love, yes. Brotherly love. Philadelphia, right? Philadelphia, right? Good stuff. Uh, the city, of course, is called the city of brotherly love, right? Creatively entitled, Philadelphia has more of the gospel in it, I guess, than they even realized. Uh, the Greek rendition of that is, uh, is brotherly love. So, <laughs> I'm sorry, there's not, nothing too creative there. But as they continue to grow and mature, there comes with it a brotherly affection. Now, we began with faith. We worked through all of these things. And I don't think that this is an exhaustive list. Nor do I feel like in every way this is a list in progression, though, and sometimes it certainly could work that way. But it ends with what? It ends with love. The beginning of faith, trusting God, and the end with the displaying of that trust in love. And the best is just a self-denying and compassionate devotion that springs from admiration. Let me ask you this. Put up the eight things there for me. If God has called us as believers in 2 Peter chapter 1 to pursue these things, that the life of followers of His should be pursuing these things and increasing in these things. Let me ask you this. What's your plan? What's your plan? What's your strategy? How are you going about accomplishing these things? There are many in our culture 
that believe. They can pursue these things alone. I'll create this church. It'll be in my living room. I'll watch somebody on TV. I'll sing to Hillsong in my CD player. I'll write a check and put it in the mail. And it'll be perfect. It'll be comfortable. I'll have no accountability. No one's ever looking me in the eye and calling me by name. I'll pursue these things by myself. That is heresy. The blessing of the Scripture is that we have the church to pursue these things together in Christ. And I know it's messy, and I know it's torn and tattered, and I know you have some pain and regret and baggage. I know all that. We're sinful people. That's what we are. But what we're centered on is the person of Christ. And so I don't know what your plan is to pursue these things, but let me tell you this. It better be a huge part of pursuing those things with a group of people. And you can't pursue those things with a group of people if you view the church in a consumeristic viewpoint. I'll go there, I'll collect what I need, I'll deposit what I need, and then I'll leave. No accountability, never serving, never connecting. That's not the biblical picture. Community. Let's strive together That's the blessing of the church. So here's what he says in verse 8. And this truly gets at the heart of what this whole thing is about. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. That's what they do. You pursue these things, and, and certainly by yourself. But if that's just what you're doing, my friends, that's not biblical. We pursue those things in our personal relationship with Christ and then pursue them with the church and then guess what? We bear fruit and we bear fruit together. But here's the heart of Matthias. Whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he is blind. You claim Christ, you look through those eight things and you said to yourself of five or six of those, I'm not increasing in those things, the scripture would say that you're blind, that you're nearsighted. And why is that? Because you have forgotten that he has cleansed you from uh, from your former sins. That's what's happened. We feel like here in this particular church community that everything centers around the person of Christ. It's nice to say gospel-centered or Jesus-centered or Jesus-focused, and then it's a whole other thing to really believe it. And why do we believe it so much? Because of this very thing. If we forget that all of this, that He's the source of it, that He's the power of it, that He's behind it all, if we forget that this is all about Jesus, then we will become blind and nearsighted. A church wearing blindfolds, giving each other Christian high-fives, coming together, making each other feel better about ourselves, and then leaving unfruitful. That's not what we're doing here. So in the same way that I asked you what your plan is, what's your plan? How are you going to pursue those things? You better know in every community that you go to, church that you're a part of, you better know what their plan is. It better be clear to you There better be no questions, and you better be able to repeat it. When I go to this particular church community, this is what they're doing. So I want to share that with you. And before I do that, I need to say a couple things. First of all, I'm not not selling a timeshare up here. 
Okay? A map of Florida is not coming out, right? And all of a sudden, like all the hotels that we own, you're going to point to it and hope that you cheer at the end. That's not going to happen. Don't mistake my passion for this vision that all of you should be a part of it. I'm not saying that. What I am saying is you need to be a part of a community that has a plan, God-given plan, of how they're going to pursue those things together. We have one here. But you need to discern if this is the place that you need to journey with. And when I say journey with, I'm not talking about coming and sitting in a seat. I'm talking about coming and being held accountable and pushing together and journeying together and loving the community together. That's what community is. A church isn't sitting in a seat and walking out. It's being a part of the community. And I know you have a past, and I know you have baggage, and I know you have struggles. And I'm deeply sorry for that past hurt and pain, but it's time to let the gospel cover all of that and push forward. Are you with me? So here's our plan. And for some of you that are just like, like, I'm interested in this because I've been coming for a while and not at all invested in the community. This is a time for you just to say, is this where I'm supposed to be or not? Okay? Here's our plan for Matthias' lot. First of all, on the very personal level, our hope in this church for you as a person is that you can embody the greatest commandment. Loving Him and loving His. When asked what the greatest commandment was, that's what Jesus said. Love God and love people. So for you as the person, that's what we're trying to encourage you in. Loving Him more, standing in awe of Him more, wrestling with Him more in the way that He teaches us more of His character, and then leaving here as missionaries, loving His people. The next aspect of our plan is what happens in a one-on-one relationship. And this, for us, all happens in discipleship. Now, uh, a year ago, a year ago, can you put it back on my last slide? A year ago, um, we realized that when we talked about discipleship, that no one really knew what that was. Have you ever seen that? Like, I grew up in the church, and everyone would say discipleship because it's in the Bible, and Matthew 28 clearly maps it out. And so we just say, yeah, like, like let's make disciples. Yeah, that'll be awesome. And let's put disciple on a t-shirt and say that we're doing it. But the re- reality is, like, we never really got what that meant. And so last summer, we wrote all summer long a module, a book, so that we could empower our people with not only what Jesus did with the disciples, not only what Paul did with Timothy, but then how you could practically live that out. Because I fear that sometimes in your life, there's just this fear of, I just don't know what to do. So what we've done is helped in that way. Here's what you can do. And so we wrote this book, and now, listen, we went from, by all estimation, Jared, help me on the final percentage, we went from 3% a year ago of our covenant members in discipling relationships to what are we, close to 80 now, right? Close to 80%, 3 to 80 in a year. Again, it's one thing to say that discipleship is fairly important. It's another thing to hire a guy that that's all he does here is pursue discipleship, leadership. It's incredible, right? So if you're interested in finding out more about what this is, if you're like, yeah, like I've been wrestling all, like, for a long time with how I can be a disciple maker. Next Tuesday, we're not messing around. Next Tuesday at 6.30 here, Jared is going to pass out our book to you, and you're going to be trained in how this works. Very simply. Here, when we respond in a second, in both the corners of the room, there's an opportunity to sign up. Yeah, like, I want to come next Tuesday and hear more about what this church talks about when it talks about discipleship. What discipleship is, is not sitting on the bench. 
Many of you have been a part of communities and yourself where you've just been allowed to live in an anti-gospel way of sitting over there while everyone else pursues the things of Christ. That's not how we roll here. We're trying to follow the scripture. And when the scripture says, go therefore and make disciples, he didn't say just the leaders. He said, go, all of you, make disciples. And so we want to help that in a very gracious, loving way. How can we best equip you? Next slide. The small group for us, so personal, the one-on-one, the small group, that happens through Sunday lot families, briefly. Many of you guys have thought about, like, why do they meet on Wednesday? That's strange. Why do they have a service tonight? I'll leave here about 1130 at night, right? Because our second service, like, gets over and then people just talk and hang. Like, why do they do that? That seems weird. That is not like any other church I've ever seen. Here's why. I grew up in an in a understanding where Sunday was, like, the busiest day of the week, like, I, I was at church for like 12 hours, and then I would come home, and my parents would give me a high five, and they'd call me holy because I was at church all week, or all day. Well, what we saw in the scripture was this disconnect of busyness and holiness. You don't have to be busy to be seen as holy. You're seen as holy because of Christ. And so what we wanted to do was participate in something countercultural, where instead of gathering corporately on Sunday, and I'm not saying that churches that gather on Sunday are incorrect. They're not. But for us, in our vision, what God's called us to do in our story, we meet corporately on Wednesday so that on Sunday we can pull back, cease, and celebrate Jesus. My kids wake up on Sunday morning. Many of you guys have heard this. They all flood our queen-size bed. It becomes a big party. It's awesome. Everyone's in their pajamas. The Lot family comes over. We wrestle together. It's incredible with the word, not literally, right? We wrestle together. Listen to this. We li- listen to this, then my law family leaves, and then we have a family nap, and then we grill that. Oh, it's a beautiful day. That's why we do small groups on Sunday. If you're interested in connecting with Matthias, honestly, it's well, I- I'm so glad you're here on Wednesdays. And, and there may be a season of time where you have to come and just see what's going on. I'm not saying that by participating in another church on Sunday and coming here on Wednesday is wrong. You have to discern that for yourself. But for us to be invested in this community outside of just the potential consumerism that that provides, is you need to get plugged into a lot family, period. We have 11 small groups on Sunday, 11, that meet all over this city from 270 in Dorset all the way out to O'Fallon. And if you've been coming for a lot and you're just like, you know what? Like, yes, I need to get connected to a lot family. I'm not connected. I have no accountability. I would love to sit in the living room with people who care about me, love me, are willing to pray for me. Then again, over, over here in this corner, when we respond, Please sign up for a lot of families. We would absolutely love for you to experience this amazing thing. It's truly incredible. Uh, next slide. Corporately, where you're at right now, I don't have to talk about it a lot because you, you're experiencing it. The Wednesday worship gathering, teaching the scripture, verse by verse, all of these things. Our plan to equip you as pastors with those eight traits in a Christ-centered way and more. Are you with me? And so part of that is coming together corporately, teaching God's word, worshiping together, and experiencing the power of Christ together. Now, um, so a lot of plans in here. You'll never ever hear me say that Matthias has got it all together. You'll never ever hear me say that we're the best church since sliced bread. You'll never ever hear me say that. We're not. There's better churches. But I will say this. 
we are pursuing and have been pursuing for six years our vision unashamedly, without fear, pursuing it wholeheartedly. And not in a way where we just focus inward. All right, so we could just do those things. Let's celebrate. Hey, right on. We're, we're doing this. We're living it. Everyone's being built up. The church is being edified. People are being discipled. That's not how it ends. It ends in this. We go out into the community and we love people. Serve. Spread the gospel. We come here to be equipped. We disciple to be equipped. We sit in small group to be equipped. So that when you're at QT, praise God, when you're at QT and you get in a conversation... You view it from a missional perspective. You stop living out of convenience and you start living because of the gospel. And if we in this vision can help equip you to view your life not from a convenient standpoint but from how can I better live as a missionary in my context, not even necessarily internationally because that's how I associate being a missionary, but here in St. Charles. And so we started this Nonprofit organization. We love St. Charles. It's been unbelievable, but it's just a catalyst, just a launch pad. Here in two weeks, you're going to hear about our next campaign, Coats for Kids, where you will have the opportunity to be in the living room of families in our community that are not projects, but that are people. Desperate need of God's grace. This is our plan. And it's ours because God breathed it to us. He gave it to us. And he said, you pursue this with all you got. So it's one thing just to say, all right, so who's in, who's out, right? And we like, we like paint a little line here in the middle. Everyone who's in on this side, everyone who's out, and we kind of like look down. No, don't, don't misunderstand this. If you look and hear this vision and you're like, this isn't for me, then let us help you find a church community. There are so many great churches in this city, and we want to help you. We're not trying to make and hoard and build this kingdom. We're trying to glorify the one who created the whole kingdom, who's the king of all of it. So we get in here, give each other a high five, say, all right, all is well and good. The problem is the scripture doesn't end. Look at what verse 10 says. Verse 10 says this, Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election. For if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. We have the chance in this community to pursue these things, not alone, but together. And I was sharing with the guys. If God doesn't call us to plant Matthias' lot six years ago on this day, the thing I was telling them, I probably wouldn't know about 95% of you. But I look around this room, and I see a whole bunch of people who it is a privilege to journey with. Who God has graced us with each other. And stories and moments of clutching the cross of Christ together and celebrating what he's done. That's what he's given us in the church. And we have this chance to be more diligent in what God has called this church to do in pursuing those traits and qualities with Christ as the center together. You see what I'm saying? 
It's one thing to say six years, praise God. And it's another thing to say, God, give us one more day. Just one. And tomorrow when Thursday comes, we will celebrate again what you have done. That's the chance we have. And so for those of you that are here, and you've been wondering, like, how do I connect with this church? All of those things are ways and opportunities that you have. If you're just interested in hearing the longer rendition of all of this, the MV, our Matthias Value Studies, coming up in October, it's three Monday nights where I talk through everything in detail, go over all of our doctrine, all of our study. That, again, here when we respond is over in the corner. It's easy for me to get discouraged. Because I know that all of this has to do with sinful people. And I look at accomplishing the things that God has called us to and the traits. And I say, how in the world will we ever do this? How will loving him and loving his ever be accomplished? And it's accomplished because of the broken body of Christ. That's why. Because he's the source. And he's the center. And when this isn't built on a phenomenal worship leader, on the gifts of man, when it's truly built on the gospel of Christ, then he can give and he can take away and we will say, your will be done. You see what I'm saying? If he took this vision out tomorrow and said, I need you all to do something else, then we would say to God be the glory because your son broke his body on our behalf in obedience to God. Then he held up the cup and he said, this is the blood of the new covenant. Please take and drink and do this in remembrance of me, he told the disciples. And tonight, for those of you that are believers, you have an opportunity to repent of your consumerism, repent of the ways that you viewed the church, and to celebrate the shepherd of this church, and that's Christ. And maybe even to be stirred to say, you know what, I want to get more plugged in here than do that in this time. I will assure you of this, and then we'll close. No matter what happens here, we will keep coming back to one thing and one thing only. Jesus planted this church. Jesus sustains this church. And Jesus will end it if he desires. Matthias's lot is in the hands of the Christ. And I'm great with that. Let's stand together. God, as you're stirring the hearts of men and women in this room to participate in your call of the church, I would ask that you would bring great clarity and wisdom. That you would rid our hearts of consumerism 
that you would help us repent of the ways that we viewed the church as a buffet to feed from and rather stir our hearts to see the church as a group of people to serve with and to grow with and to love with and to cry with. God, renew our picture of the church. Help us see it as your plan. Thank you for using us, God. Respond when you're ready.